Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real, because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how it all affects our nation's future. This week, we will discuss the war in Ukraine. Now entering its sixth month, Russia's invasion of Ukraine has many national security and economic and geopolitical implications for the United States and the rest of the world. And we'll discuss it all this week with two special guests. First up is Jason Bobian, a PBD award-winning journalist with National Public Radio, currently reporting from Zaporizhia, Ukraine. Concord Coalition Communications Director Av Harris will join that conversation. And then we'll get a bigger picture strategic overview from Michael O'Hanlon of the Brookings Institution. He's the author of a 2021 book, The Art of War in an Age of Peace. Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman will join me and Av for that conversation. So now let's welcome our first guest, Jason Bobian. And before we get started, I want to mention two brief programming notes. First, you might hear some slight audio interruptions as uh, Jason's Wi-Fi connection was a bit spotty, which is understandable because he was coming from a war zone. Second, uh, our interview with Jason was recorded just prior to the announcement that Russia and Ukraine had reached an agreement to allow grain exports from Ukraine to resume through its Black Sea ports. Uh, by the way, almost as soon as it was announced, the deal was called into question by Russia bombing Odessa, one of Ukraine's main shipping ports on the Black Sea. So we'll get started and I'll turn things over to Av uh, as we uh, begin with uh, Jason. The two of you are former colleagues in public radio and Av, you were the one responsible for getting Jason to come on Facing the Future. So Av, take it away. Thank you, Bob. And uh, Jason, I want to thank you very much uh, for taking time uh, out of your schedule to talk to us. And I also want to thank you for just what you're doing. You're, you're putting your, your life in danger to, to make sure Americans are better informed. And it's not something that should ever be taken for granted. So, so thank you for everything that you're doing. No, thanks for that. Appreciate it. So can you describe where you are in Ukraine and what you've been seeing just for the last week or 10 days or so? Give us a little bit of a picture of of life and war. Yeah, so at the moment I'm talking to you from Zaporizhia, which is sort of in the southeast of what is still uh, Ukrainian territory, but it's, it's pushing close towards the, the, the territory that Russia has grabbed north of Mariupol. I think a lot of people are familiar with where that is. And, and Zaporizhia as a region actually extends down in there. And, and much of the Zaporizhian oblast has been, been occupied by Russians, but the city itself remains in, in Ukrainian hands. So I'm, I'm here at the moment, um, been going around just trying to talk to people who are coming out of some of the occupied territories, talking to volunteers who are trying to help support the troops. Um, and before this, we were up in Kharkiv, which is 
sort of straight north of here, just uh, 25 miles from the Russian border. And, and Kharkiv also has been a place that has been really hard hit in, in this war. And it, it, it's interesting, uh, Kharkiv, still life is kind of trying to come back to normal there. The, the downtown was bombed incredibly heavily. You still in Kharkiv are hearing just the booming of artillery from fighting right on the edges of the city, but just almost constantly. It's just going on and the air raid sirens are going off so frequently that people don't even pay much attention to them anymore. Um, so there are parts of Ukraine where life is kind of going back to normal. Like we went past through Metro and it looked like a bright sunny day in New York. There's all these people out with children and um, it, 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 life seemed incredibly normal, but there are other places where that's not at all the case. And then there's also some really stiff fighting that's happening along these front lines between the Russian and the Ukrainian forces. So a lot of Russian bombardment, um, and but yet civilian life goes on in, in, in some way. So is there any pattern to the Russian attacks? Is there uh, sort of a rhythm to it or a schedule where, you know, either it happens at night or, or, or early in the morning or something like that? Or is it just completely random and people are, you know, risking going out to the store and never coming back every time they leave their homes? You know, I mean, I don't think there's anywhere in Ukraine at the moment that is completely safe. It, the Russians have made it clear that they will drop cruise missiles into what seem like some of the safest, quietest uh, cities in the middle of the country, just out of the blue and kill a dozen, two dozen people. Uh, things like that are happening. Um, it, it's, it is, feels very random on, on, on that front. Um, you know, a way, it is clear in places, you know, where, like uh, uh, right on the border with Donetsk, um, there's very fierce fighting and, and there's attempts at the moment from Russian troops to actually take the last portion of the Donetsk region. And so, so that it's quite clear there what's happening, but elsewhere in the country, there's just this constant threat that missiles could come in at almost any moment. But people here have very much just accepted that. It's, there's something, you, you can't really do much about it when they do hit, they tend to hit in just one place, right? And so maybe it takes down one apartment building. It's just like part of the way this, this war is playing out for Ukrainians right now. And they don't have a lot of choice. So uh, people are sort of accepting it and going about their business. And, you know, even right at the moment, like there's family. Um, right. I, I don't know where you lost me, but just <laughs> you, go, you were, go from here. Yeah, you were, yeah. You were, just, you were describing, um, you know, this civilian life, you know, under constant bombardment from the Russians. And, and I think it's interesting because here in America, we're not really used to this kind of a ground war, but uh, it's happened even within, you know, even within the lifetime of some of the older folks in Ukraine. And just as an aside, so my own grandfather was taken prisoner by the uh, Red Army the last time the Russians invaded Ukraine in 1939. Um, and so, and there are others, there are older folks who remember this as children, uh, yeah. Ground yeah. War and World War II. Do you find that any of the the younger people or middle-aged folks either have heard, is this affirming of stories they've heard in the past and does that give them strength uh, to kind of get through this type of living hell that you're describing? Um, yeah, I mean, Ukrainians will, can <laughs> they can start listing the aggression by the Russians going back 
and how they feel that Russia has uh, for a very long time uh, abused them, dominate them and steal their territory. And this is just one more episode in history that they see that this is is happening. And it, it definitely is is something that has added to the the sort of national spirit and the patriotic spirit of people uh, here is is recounting some of these other incidents that have happened in the past. And it, it also just is part of the reason that people completely do not trust the Russians and are, are very hesitant to enter into any peace accord. Um, you know, they, they just do not trust anything that the Russians say. So there's from the Ukrainian side, uh, unfortunately, you know, a real sense that they are, don't want to go to the, into into peace talks except from a position of strength um and it it, it leads to a position where you've got russia has a lot still in its back pocket in terms of weapons and ukrainians don't trust them at all and it, it makes it hard to see this conflict ending anytime soon i want to focus on that since you since you brought it up so uh, the United States has committed um, close to $100 billion in military and uh, humanitarian assistance for the Ukrainians to try to repel the Russian invasion. Do you see any impact of that, uh, either the military aid or military assistance or humanitarian assistance on the ground in Ukraine? And do the civilians that you see every day and interact with every day, do they see any impact of that? Definitely the, the HIMARS, uh, which are a, a rocket launching system, uh, there's at least nine of them have come in. They're a little bit secretive about exactly how many there are and where they are, but they have made a big difference. And this allows the Ukrainians to sit back further away from the front lines and be able to launch rockets, these barrages of rockets that come out of them uh, at about these things have a capacity of about 2,200 kilometers. They've been limited by the U.S. to only be able to fire at a range of about 50 kilometers because they, the U.S. doesn't want Ukraine to be attacking Russia with them. But it does allow them to sit behind the front lines and really hammer some Russian positions. And the, the, there's even songs about the HIMARS here on social media, like that it's a bit very well recognized here that these things are making a big difference um, uh, on, on the front line. And uh, there's calls for, for more of these types of weapons to, to come in. In terms of the impression that's being made uh, on the United States efforts by the civilians that you speak with and interact with every day, what What's your what's your impression? What, what do they think of what America is doing and the, the decisions made by President Biden and Congress? And do, do they think it's making any difference? I think they definitely think it's making a difference. I, I think they very much feel that uh, President Biden and the U.S. is is behind them. Uh, would they like more? Yes, they would like more. And they so, you, I mean, obviously, you get different perspectives from different people. But there are people here who are basically saying that why does the U.S. and Europe allow Russia to continue to come in and just bomb cities like they did last week, where they bombed Venezia and killed 24 people, including this girl who has become this martyr, this four-year-old girl with Down syndrome named Lisa, who was killed in that that missile attack last week and her pictures 
all, all over uh, the place. She had actually appeared in a video with the first lady at Christmas time, uh, just doing, you know, festive holiday type of stuff. Um, and so uh, that has been a, a, a sort of a rallying cry here. And, and people are saying, why is it that Europe and the U.S. don't come in and just, you know, frankly, bomb the hell out of uh, some of these Russian ships that are launching these missiles and some of these Russian bases where these bombers are taken off from. Uh, so far, the West has told Ukraine, don't attack anything inside Russia, and we're not going to attack anything inside Russia. Uh, and I think there's very much a perspective amongst the Ukrainians that the West is tying their hand and being unwilling to, to jump in and be a little bit more aggressive uh, in retaliating against Russia, particularly when they, they continually are carrying out the, these, these airstrikes that are killing you know, dozens of people. And it's not just that bombing of the, you know, the one that I just mentioned where the four-year-old girl was killed along with two dozen other people. Before that, they bombed a shopping mall, 21 people dead. Before that, they took down an apartment building. Uh, I think what, it was a five-story apartment building. Again, I think it was around 24 dead in that one. I mean, it's just day after day, we're, we're getting um, civilian casualties from Russia sitting back and launching missiles into Ukrainian territory. And the war is having a profound impact on the world and the global economy. Uh, Bob, I, I know you, you have uh, some questions related to that as well. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that perhaps doesn't get enough attention is the food crisis worldwide, really, that is threatened by this war. Um, you know, between Russia and Ukraine, uh, the exports of grains and, and cooking oils and things that people really need to uh, uh, avoid famine and, uh, uh, you know, just food insecurity around the world come from this area. And um, uh, it, it, the exports are greatly diminished now because of the war. And this is, uh, I know, causing uh, a lot of concern at the UN and, and other places just about uh, what effect this is going to have on food supply and, of course, on the economy because it affects uh, inflation. It's uh, affecting gas prices, certainly, because you can throw gas into that into that mix as well. Um, so. I know you've spent some time covering uh, poverty and, and uh, you know, some of these inequities. How does the, uh, are, are there steps that can be taken or that are being taken to counteract the, uh, the, the blockade, the Black Sea blockade that uh, has prevented some of the Ukrainian exports from getting out? There are efforts. Yeah, absolutely. There, there are, uh, this is, very much on the minds of, uh, of people here. Uh, you know, farmers are growing grain, uh, sunflower fields just for looks like miles in front of you are yellow at the moment. You can just see these big heads of sunflowers, which will eventually, you know, hopefully be turned into sunflower oil, uh, which is one of the big exports from here. The, the Ukrainians did manage to take back Snake Island, which is on the far west side of the Black Sea, kind of below the most further west, western port of Odessa. Um, 
the hope is that they can open up a shipping channel from Odessa along that far western edge and reach Romania and where the Danube comes in and, and use some of the ports there to move some of this grain. Um, the problem at the moment is, you know, they are growing the grain. They're, these crops are out in the field. The big issue is whether they can shift at the end of this harvest into this entirely new logistical mode to get all this grain that used to be traveling on major ships out of the Black Sea, whether they can be shifting that into a limited number of ships that come up just along that, that western edge. Um, that also is going to mean demining some of it. It also is going to mean getting past those Russian ships and not running into a confrontation with them, which is still unclear. Um, and there are efforts to start moving a lot of that grain overland into Poland. But there simply aren't the grain silos, uh, the rail cars, the, the equipment to move grain from one of the largest grain producers in the world to all of a sudden shift that, okay, we're going to send this across Poland and ship it out through Gdansk. Uh, that's just, you know, the, the, the idea of trying to just do that overnight is uh, a really, really difficult. There are attempts to do that, but whether they're going to be able to pull it off or not is an open question. I've heard some talk about a humanitarian escort of uh, ships that might sort of challenge the Russian blockade. Uh, that that idea seemed to have been floated, and I haven't I haven't no pun intended uh, haven't heard any follow up of it. Uh, have you? Um, you know, I've also heard that um, that floated, as you say. Um, the question is, who's whose navy is going to get out there and be the one to? to first confront the Russians, right? That's the question. And mm. that's going to be a question for the West. It's going to be a question for NATO. Um, and that has not been answered because, yes, if if you're going to escort those ships in and out, um, the, who knows what's going to happen? Um, you know, Russia currently is enforcing a blockade on the Black Sea. So, um you know, maybe they can work that out in a negotiated settlement so that they can set up some sort of corridor. At the moment, it's not there yet. So, Jason, I just have a couple of minutes left. Um, and I was wondering if if you could give your perspective on uh, something that actually Tom Friedman brought up in a column recently in The New York Times. So he described a winter strategy that Putin is uh, is is pursuing, which is keep this indiscriminate shelling and rockets going, kill a lot of civilians, you know, take Eastern uh, territory in, in the Donetsk region, you know, bit by bit, hold on to as much territory and just grind on and last into the winter. And then therefore higher energy prices or access to natural gas for Europeans may be something that, uh, you know, the Russians can have a little bit of control on and that that would pressure the Europeans to kind of, pressure President Zelensky and the Ukrainians to negotiate something with Russia that would give up uh, a bunch of territory. That strategy versus a summer strategy that the Americans and NATO allies and Europeans are pursuing, which is, you know, get advanced weaponry in there and make the Russians pay a very uh, steep price. And that would pressure the Russians into negotiating something to save face and, you know, giving up a bunch of the territory that they, they had gained. How do you see all that 
playing out. Um, because basically what Tom Friedman was saying is this is it right now is the critical phase in uh, in the war, because that will dictate uh, how things go and how how we end this. What what's your perspective on all that? I think that he's got a very good point. I mean, the Russians can play the long game. The Ukrainians, you know, that's going to be much harder for the Ukrainians to to grind this out for month after month. Both sides are losing somewhere between 100 and 200 soldiers a day. Um, you know, when you talk about a population of only 40 million people here in Ukraine, that cuts in more than it does in, in Russia. So the, the troop losses have a greater impact here than they do uh, on, on the Russian side. Um, also, Russia is able to, to do this. They've got the missiles to be able to, to be distracting Ukraine by bombing all across the country. Um, and it allows them to, to, to take some of the pressure off of their, their frontline troops. They don't need to pro progress quite as quickly. Um, and yeah, I think they believe that they'll have a lot more leverage come winter because um, Germany, other parts of Europe <laughs> really are still dependent on Russian energy to, to run their plants, to keep their houses heated in the, in the winter. So I, and I think it's, uh, it's absolutely true. And I think it's a little bit dangerous or, you know, from a Ukrainian perspective right now that this war seems to be losing some of the uh, the attention that it was getting earlier that, um, you know, obviously the news cycle moves on. There's other things happening. I do think that from a Ukrainian perspective, it's very dangerous if the world's attention moves away now uh, and and uh, they don't get a, a ramping up of, of supplies that they need. And um, yeah, potentially uh, the, the, the tools that, that they need to confront Russia right now before Russia gets to a point where they can hold that energy card uh, over the West. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, Concord Coalition Communications Director of Harris. And I are discussing the war in Ukraine with NPR reporter Jason Bobian. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. And in this segment, we'll continue our look at the war in Ukraine. And we welcome to the conversation Michael O'Hanlon of the Brookings Institution. Tori Gorman, policy director of the Concord Coalition, will also join us. And Harris, our communications director, remains with us. Uh, Michael O'Hanlon is Senior Fellow and Director of Research and Foreign Policy at the Brookings Institution, where he specializes in U.S. defense strategy, the use of military force, and American national security policy, which makes him a perfect guest for this segment. He's the author of several books relevant to our discussion, including Beyond NATO, A New Security Architecture for Eastern Europe, and his latest book, Waging War in a Time of Peace, which was published last year. Michael, we discussed your book last year. The central premise was that the U.S. should uh, exercise what you call resolute restraint, meaning being resolute in sticking up for certain principles of the post-war era that have tended to stabilize the peace, and also being uh, restrained in uh, not going too far. So how does the uh, war in Ukraine fit into that concept of uh, resolute restraint? You know, if I was going to if I was going to rewrite the book or issue a new version this year, 
I would insert the word great power next to the word peace. So it's the art of war in the age of great power peace. It still is the age of great power peace. And one of the most telling decisions President Biden made, of course, maybe the single most important in this whole thing was not to risk the direct participation of U.S. combat forces in a war against Russia, another nuclear armed state. And so the combination of the memories of the world wars, nuclear weapons deterrence, and other considerations have, it seems at least for the time being, persuaded world leaders that the great powers just cannot afford to fight each other, even when uh, there are such horrible things happening that we'd like to stop in some way, and at some tactical level at least probably could stop with use of NATO air power against Russian artillery and tanks. That would beg the question of what Russia would do next. And that's the whole point. We, we don't know. We couldn't control it. And so rather than find out, we decide to throw the kitchen sink at them and everything else except our own military. And so in that sense, it is still an age of peace, but limited to peace between the great powers and among that you know, top 10 or 12 group. In the, in the world, most of them nuclear, or either nuclear weapon states or huge industrial powers. But in terms of resolute restraint, yes, I, I think that what President Biden is underscoring is that we would fight for the defense of our allies, NATO members, you know, and of course in East Asia, Japan, et cetera. It seems that he would also fight in defense of Taiwan. That's something he's talked about in the last year, even though we don't have an official US policy on that, but he's not willing to fight beyond that. He still is sticking true to the concept that we need to be restrained in some ways, but resolute in defense of this country, its own territory, its own people, and its treaty allies. And so in that sense, Biden's worldview is not too different from mine. He's made some specific decisions that I would challenge or perhaps have a different take on. Most importantly, getting out of Afghanistan abruptly and also continuing the promise that we would bring Ukraine into NATO someday. So Biden showed restraint in not wanting to fight in this war, but he failed to show restraint in his expansive interest in enlarging NATO, which is already about to be twice the size it was at the end of the Cold War. It's about to have 32 members with Finland and Sweden expected to join soon. That's twice the 16 that we had when the actual uh, anti-Soviet coalition was necessary. And I think that Part of, I'm not trying to excuse what Putin's done here, but part of the backdrop to the Russian decision to attack Ukraine was the expectation that the West was going to try to pull Ukraine into its orbit. Uh, and Ukraine, of course, has been at the center of East-West power competition for a millennium. And Putin had no intention of sort of losing it to the West on his watch. So in that sense, I think Biden failed to show adequate restraint. He's very typical of most Democrats and Republicans in the United States on that issue, at least in the foreign policy community. Most most of my colleagues in the U.S. strategic community were in favor of NATO expansion, even as far east as Ukraine and Georgia. I was not. A few other people like Bill Burns and former Secretary of Defense Bill Perry were not. Uh, but we lost the debate. And in that sense, Biden did not show restraint. So, you know, we can apply the concept in other cases and try to flesh out how you should be resolute on the really core fundamental interests but be restrained on the second and third order interests, it, it always is going to require some interpretation. There's no cookbook or you know, edict from on high that tells you exactly which interests are top tier and which are second or third tier. You have to be prepared to have analytical debates and investigations of the question to reach any conclusion. But I think still establishing that kind of a framework and distinguishing top tier interests from secondary interests is essential for grand strategy.
we hate to stand by and watch terrible things happen, especially when those terrible things could then snowball and jeopardize our direct interests. So I think Biden, in that sense, gets uh, not enough credit for having made a clean, clear and firm determination that Ukraine was worth doing a lot about, but it was not worth risking war against Russia with our own forces. And, yeah, uh, and, th- and that and distinction is important. And making it clear where the lines were in his mind so everybody has understood. Av, you want to jump in? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I wonder what you think, Michael, about what do we do going forward? Because we've heard a lot of talk from policymakers, both in the administration and in Congress, about what success looks like and wanting to achieve success and denying Russia the ability to um, impose its will on Ukraine. But in hearing the report on the ground that we got uh, from from Jason Bobian, it seems to me that the cost of doing that and the effort that's going to have to be made in order to achieve whatever success looks like from the United States and uh, Western European point of view, that, 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 that cost is going to be a lot more than people are prepared for. So what, what are your thoughts on where we go from here? Yeah, I think it's scary, you know, um, and that's part of why I, even though I just defended Biden for his clear delineation of what we should do in Ukraine and what we shouldn't, I think he got it wrong to sort of underestimate what this war could become as they started to see it becoming likely, if not inevitable, at the end of 2021, and frankly, didn't do that much to try to stop it. Now, they didn't have that much power to stop it in one sense, because it was Putin's decision and Putin's war, and nothing can defend what Putin's done here. However, President Macron of France seemed to have the right instinct. He just didn't have a big enough country that he was representing to be able to change the dynamics fundamentally. But I thought you could have borrowed a page from John F. Kennedy in the Cuban Missile Crisis, had certain negotiations privately, certain negotiations publicly, and basically said to Putin, "Okay, you don't want Ukraine and NATO. Let's hear your better ideas or let's start a long process of both sides coming up with better ideas that will preserve Ukraine's sovereignty without it having to be part of either the West or the East, if you will. And in the meantime, we won't bring them into NATO and you you don't attack them either. And let's just talk. Let's just turn this into an extended diplomatic process. The Biden team did not really do that. They tended to say, if you know, if Putin attacks, there's nothing we can do about it. We're going to make sure the world knows it was his fault and he's going to hang himself with his own petard. But in fact, he's now damaging much of the world with his with his horrible decision. And it's fun. Again, fundamentally, uh, we should blame Putin, not the United States or, or the West. But I think we fail to anticipate just how ugly this could be. You know, the CIA gets correct credit for having uh, detected some plots against President Zelensky, for having seen some of what Putin was planning, for allowing Biden to telegraph to the world this is going to be Putin's decision. It's a war of aggression. But the CIA did not do a particularly good job at understanding how this war could get ugly and be long. In fact, most people, as a rule, intelligence agencies or not, tend to underappreciate the likelihood that war will go badly and worse than predicted, or at least not the way they anticipate prior to the bullets being shot. And and so now we're in that protracted state and we don't, you're right, we don't really know how we get out of it. I mean, one way is Putin wins, but none of us want that. And God bless the Ukrainians. I don't think Putin's going to win a clean, clear, decisive, overwhelming victory where he actually replaces the Zelensky government or takes half of Ukraine or achieves some other transformative effect like that. He is sitting on about 20 percent of Ukraine's land right now, of course. 
and maybe he'll decide that's enough and look for a way to establish a ceasefire. But President Zelensky just said he wouldn't tolerate such a ceasefire. Uh, and so I think until the Ukrainians get tired of the fight, I, I mean, they are tired in one sense, it's been so tragic for their country, but until they come to the conclusion that they can't retake much or most of their territory, they're going to want to see how they can use our high mobility artillery rocket systems and other strike platforms to maybe have a chance of going on the counteroffensive. So inevitably, that's going to have to play out. And so I think there's almost no way to see how this war could end or even reach a ceasefire in the course of the summer and early to mid-fall of 2022. The best case scenario is both sides start to conclude that they've achieved some gains. You know, at least Ukraine's held onto its country, most of its territory, its capital city, its government. Maybe they win a little bit of land back. Maybe they start a diplomatic process that could schedule referenda for possibly getting other parts of it back someday. And that maybe becomes good enough for them. And then maybe for Russia, same thing, that as long as they know that Ukraine's not going to be in NATO, they can still hold on to some of the territory, at least for the moment. And most of all, they sent a clear message that the West cannot, you know, bring Ukraine into its orbit, that Putin could claim a victory. That's about the best case. And even that is not attainable right now. So um, the worst case is, you know, years of fighting or also the possibility of ceasefires being created and then failing and perhaps even preparing or giving an opportunity for each side to prepare, especially for Russia to prepare the next offensive such that the ceasefire winds up serving the cause of war more than the cause of peace. So there are a lot of ways this can still go bad, not to mention escalation and direct risk of combat between NATO and Russia. And I don't rule that out completely either. I'm not suggesting anybody should go to you know bed tonight fearful for nuclear war. But at some point, if Putin decides he's losing, the fact that we're doing so much to help Ukraine has to really get under his skin. And he, you know, he has to wonder if he can sort of take us to the brink of a risk of direct war to get us to either desist or to at least enter into a broad diplomatic process that gives him a chance of achieving some of his goals or solidifying some of his goals, uh, you know, codifying them in a way that he couldn't otherwise. Um, so I'm nervous about all that stuff going forward. There's no easy answer for how this ends. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Av Harris, and I are discussing the war in Ukraine with Michael O'Hanlon, Senior Fellow and Director of Research in Foreign Policy at the Brookings Institution. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, and Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman and the Communications Director Av Harris and I are talking with Michael O'Hanlon of the Brookings Institution about the war in Ukraine. Uh, Tori, your questions. Michael, you were talking about uh, at the end of this, you know, when when Russia and Ukraine realize that they can't really move the possession arrow one way or the other. And finally, negotiations began over some sort of resolution over the over the crisis. And I'm, I'm wondering, since Vladimir Putin has basically pissed off 99 percent of the world, who is the responsible party, the responsible nation, the responsible group that is capable of negotiating a, a resolution to the Ukraine-Russia uh, war? Tori, that's a great question. And there are a couple of ways to think about it. I don't know that I have a single or simple answer. 
first of all, you're right. I think that most of the world is upset with Putin, but not all the world is horrified. The, the people who are just morally repulsed are pretty much those of us in the West. And then some in East Asia and maybe a few others here and there. But what's notable to me, looking at countries like India, many Middle Eastern countries, number of African countries where Foreign Minister Lavrov of Russia has just visited, most of those countries are trying to stay out of a zero-sum fight uh, between the United States and Russia. And certainly that's China's role. And in the United States debate, we often say that China's taking Russia's side. Well, in a way it is because they're buying some cheap Russian oil and they're giving some diplomatic support to Russia, but they're not giving them any weapons, which is quite notable since Russia has been asking for the weapons. And they've also cut off most high-tech exports for reasons that folks in your world understand at least as well as folks in my world, because it has to do with risking application of sanctions for any company that might deign to do business with Russia mm -hmm. at this juncture. And so it's not just the Chinese government making a principled decision. It's also fear of economic retaliation from the West. But the sum total of that is that most of the world is actually in an ambiguous place on this conflict. Not so much, uh, mm -hmm. it may not be that many fans of Putin on the planet, but there are not that many uh, in the global South, broadly defined, who are looking to take the US side or the NATO side in this, which may create some opportunities. It may mean that, you know, I mean, this sounds crazy, but maybe the United States and China together help lead those negotiations. It'd be mm -hmm. nice to find some topic where we could actually cooperate these days. We, <laughs> After all, we say that's still our goal, to find places where we can cooperate with China. But increasingly in the defense world and the broader foreign policy world, we're portraying China as really uh, an adversary. I don't go along with that depiction. I think China is a major concern. Mm -hmm. but not an adversary. And this may be an opportunity to benefit from the fact that I think it's a much better country than, frankly, the China of Mao's years or the Soviet Union of Stalin's years, uh, certainly the Germany of Hitler's time. And, and I think there are areas where we could try to work with China, because I'm pretty sure the Chinese don't like this war either. They may give us a little higher share of the blame for having caused it, and they may want to keep Russia afloat, but they're, they're not liking it. And so that's the way I tend to think about it. And you, and you could imagine, you know, using the so-called good offices of the United Nations. But more often than not, that doesn't work unless the parties to the conflict are already tired of the fight and really want, you know, a mediator to succeed. Or the, if that UN official is really backed up by the world's great powers. So I tend to think that uh, on this one, getting some kind of common vision between China and the United States and maybe even India may be the first step forward. And, uh, you know, beyond that, I'd like to see the United States start talking to Ukraine, not to force Ukraine to make territorial concessions. I don't think that's our role. And I'd have some moral qualms about that. Mm -hmm. but, I, but, but I do think we have to rein in Zelensky's um, just adamant view that all Ukrainian land that's been lost to Russia since 2014 must be retaken for the simple reason that I don't see that as being feasible. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's, it's an unnecessarily ambitious goal that I think is more likely to condemn the region to several years more of warfare and even to the possibility of him being assassinated by Russia, because we know Russia's tried that several times already. Right, right. And I think they will try again as long as this conflict continues, if they get a, ch a chance and get a shot. So uh, I think Zelensky should try his counteroffensive, see how he does. Perhaps he gets some leverage from that for negotiations. And then we should encourage him to think in terms of some more creative concepts, some areas of shared sovereignty, 
where both Russia or, and Ukraine could claim sovereignty, but an area could be governed by an autonomous local body. Uh, there's some of that that's happened, for example, in Bosnia that could be a model. Uh, that, or maybe imagine a referendum in the year 2040, once Putin's finally gone from the scene, where people who live in a region, and, 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 right, I hope, and, and everybody else who lived there once before could vote on whether the, the region should be independent or in Russia or Ukraine. Those kind of concepts we may need to get into the mix. A lot of Americans hate this kind of talk. I'm going to get a lot of angry mail, I'm sure, from a number of your listeners, because whenever I talk about this kind of stuff, um, you know, it makes people think you're appeasing Putin. But I just I'm trying to end the war, see what visions might be realistic for trying to to prevent further escalation. And I think we should at least get that conversation going. All right. And, and touching on the fact that this might be an extended conflict, uh, you know, the Concord Coalition being a, a fiscal watchdog group. I'm curious, would like to talk to you a little bit about the economic and budgetary effects of the war in Ukraine. You know, we've already spent the U.S. has spent about fifty four billion dollars in direct appropriations for security and humanitarian aid. You know, there are the ancillary effects of of inflation of the of the conflict with inflation, energy shortage, food shortage. You know, the war has already gone on a lot longer than people have expected. So my question is, do you think that NATO and the U.S. are prepared to go the distance in in Ukraine, whatever, you know, to get to that negotiated solution or to achieve victory, whatever they define victory to be? But but do they have the temerity, the resources, the backbone to go the distance? You know, it's a great question, Tori, because I think we do have the resources if we just and, and folks like you know this better than I, I have to tap into my congressional budget office background <laughs> to, uh, to have a little bit of ability to, to engage that conversation. But as you point out, we've spent $50 billion on the Ukraine war. We spent $6 trillion on COVID relief. And so it, it's not like the numbers themselves are impossible. However, when you add in the politics, as you just mentioned, and then, of course, that this does come after $6 trillion of COVID relief that produced mm -hmm. all of its own problems, which mm -hmm. now the Ukraine issue has to piggyback on top of. And, of course, it's the all of that is much of why, you know, Build Back Better ran into such headwinds, because all the other things that happened in the world and in previous fiscal policy created a political context that made it much less possible to have further ambitious domestic investments. At least that's how I read it. Uh, so the Ukraine numbers are a lot smaller than Build Back Better. And even when you add in the defense budget increases we've had in the last couple of years, it's still a lot smaller than COVID response, but it comes in the context of the $30 trillion of debt that you folks have been reminding us we all now are passing <laughs> on to our kids and yes. everything else that creates a negative economic and political environment. So I don't know for a fact, uh, but I, I guess I'll say this, you know, because I'm talking like a good CBO or out of both sides of my mouth. But, <laughs> but, but I will say, if I had to predict, I think the American people will stand by Ukraine. Because there aren't that many things that unite us right now, but it's been pretty impressive to watch how much the Congress and the president have cooperated. Democrats and Republicans have cooperated. And this does feel like a little bit of a good against evil struggle. And the Ukrainians, I think, continue to impress and amaze us. So I think I could imagine a situation where we do start putting a little bit of pressure on Ukrainian friends to think creatively about diplomatic options the way I was just discussing, but I'm not sure we're going to, you know, abandon them or start restricting our overall support for them. And uh, I hope not. And I don't think we will. There's at least one hopeful sign is that the Ukraine and Russia reached an agreement brokered by Turkey and the UN on letting Ukrainian grain uh, leave the country. Then, of course, Russia bombed Odessa, which was they blew up Odessa. Yeah, yeah. kind of a, a strange. What do you make of that? I mean, is this just like uh, I mean, obviously, there's a good thing. Is it like Putin couldn't let that go without just 
showing he could still bomb Odessa if he wanted to? Yeah, I think that he'll, you know, give with one hand and take back with the other. And I think he's trying to create, he's trying to remind us not to sanction him or punish him too much, or he might do something crazy. And I think he's also trying to set up leverage for whatever negotiations may someday happen so that we'll be more interested in a peace deal at that point than perhaps uh, President Zelensky. And maybe we'll do what I'm suggesting we should do. Um, but from Putin's point of view, you know, that would serve his interest. Uh, and uh, I think it serves our interest as well if it helps end the war, that we think more flexibly about diplomacy. But if we're fearful of Russian military escalation, economic escalation, we're going to feel even more incentive to be creative diplomatically. You know, I think that we're going to have to leave it there on a, a semi-hopeful, uh, optimistic note. Um, because that's all the time we have uh, this week. But I want to thank our guest, uh, Michael O'Hanlon of the Brookings Institution, for his insights into the strategic implications of the war in Ukraine. And thanks as well to uh, Tori and Av, as usual, for joining me in today's discussion. Thanks to you for tuning in. This is Bob Bixby. I'll be back next week with another edition of Facing the Future. Facing the Future.